This morning's message is from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, and the theme is careful how you build. Careful how you build. Some of you would know that uh, in my previous life, my past life, uh, many years ago, I was involved in the building industry. There is, I suppose something, what, what attracted me to it is that there is something exciting about building. Well, you see, from early civilization, man has been involved in building. In our series in, in Genesis, we hear or we heard about two magnificent building projects. One was a great success. It was Noah's Ark. It was meant to float and it did, built in obedience to God's plan to bring salvation to man. It was a marvellous project that spanned over many, many years. The other, however, the other building project was a failure. It was called the Tower of Babel. Built for different purpose. It wasn't built to float. It was built to certainly not give glory to God, but to give glory to man. And brought, at the end of it, it brought nothing but confusion. Why is it that man has this desire not only to build something physical, but to leave something behind. I think it's because we have this innate or deep yearning to know that our lives, once we have come and gone, that our lives have mattered for something. We are born dreamers, children of visions, hopes and dreams. We want to do Things. Some want to do great things, make the world a better place, that the world, you're leaving the world a little bit better than how you found it. Do something significant that our lives had counted for something. Tony Campolo, in one of his books, expands on this craving and he extends it to other areas of life, not just Construction, and in his book it's called Everything You've Heard is Wrong. And this is what he says, and I quote, Each of us, when leaving this earth, will crave to know that we have left behind something of significance. And each of us hopes that his or her legacy is good and will be honoured as such. There are philanthropists who give with the hope that buildings on university campuses will be named after them. There are authors who fantasise about writing books that will stand the test of time and become classics. There are soldiers who, brave, who bravely go to their deaths dreaming of ballads being written about them and sung to future generations. The idea that when our lives are ended, nothing significant will remain is not only intolerable, but I contend it is also untrue, end of quote. It touches a few areas there, isn't it? Now in the passage before us, the Apostle Paul is talking not only about life in general, but about the church in particular, the kingdom of God, the work that we do in the kingdom of God. In the preceding verses, just before verse 10 in chapter 3, 
he told us that the church was a field or, or a farm. So the analogy is drawn, the, the picture is drawn from agriculture. Now he goes to the construction site. He tells us that the church is a construction site. So let's look at these verses and see what we can learn from the Word of God. First of all, in verse 10, we talk about our calling, our calling. By the grace of God that God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. Each one should build with care. One of the things we must understand is that we're all builders, not physical brick type of builders, some of us might be, but we're all building something. Our aim should be to be good builders. That's why it's saying here that each one should build, each one, it doesn't say some, it says each one should build with care. Our work consists in adding to the foundation that has already been laid. We are workers in this great building called the Kingdom of God. The divine architect has approved the plans. He has set us, his workers, in place. We all have something to do. And the building process has begun. Now, we don't all know how it's all going to fit together. Some of us are working in one corner and somebody else is working on something else. Some, of, some perhaps are working in a quarry cutting stones and some of us are actually on the building site. Some are just transporting. Some are, are cooking. Some are, are serving the drinks. The building process has begun. And we don't know. We'd like to know how it all fills together in the end. But he knows. We don't know even if, if what it's going to look like when it's all finished. That's the way it is with workers. That's the way it is with workers. He knows. All that we know is that we have a job to do. And if we do it right, according to his design, it will all fit together to produce a finished product. The other point here is the right foundation, verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. To do it right, we have to build on the right foundation. Verse 11 tells us that there is only one foundation upon which we can build. Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. As you walk through a building site, and even if you built your own home, the foundation is not the most popular or visible part of the building. But it is the most important part of the building. Just because it's not pretty, it's not aesthetically pleasing, doesn't mean that it's not important. Or in fact, that you can just do whatever. This is because if it is not done properly, the rest of the building starts to crack and some even start to lean. Tower of Pisa is a good example of that. 
eventually it collapses. Unfortunately, we have to say that much of what passes or it is in, in a past time was looked upon as Christian work has long ago ceased to be Christian work and is now simply, we can just call it social work, humanistic work. YMCA, yes, YMCA, that's the Young Men's Christian Association. Is there anything of Christian left in the YMCA or the YWCA? I don't know. I seriously question it. But certainly the foundations are there. Universities in all the Ivy League's universities, Ivy League universities in the US, for example, were started by Christians. You look at the stuff that they're teaching now. Is there any Christian work left in them? It's been erased. Every Christian work without Christ ceases to be true Christian work. It's gone off on a tangent. I'm not saying it's bad from a human point of view, but it's certainly bad from a spiritual point of view. Every church that departs from the teaching about Christ and his work, his person and his resurrection, begins to slide away from the foundation and soon becomes unstable and wobbly. It simply cannot stand. As many cracks start to appear, weaknesses, failures, and finally it collapses and crumbles into nothing. Every individual, if your life, if your family is not built on the foundation of Christ, you will find your own life, you will find your own family life crumbling. But I have also seen individuals and families with everything crumbling around them and earthquakes, sometimes literal, but many times the earthquakes and the storms of life coming in all different forms and their house is standing because they withstood, they they built on the right foundation. doesn't matter what happened, they're still standing. Verse 12, something else that is important is the quality of materials. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw... Now, if you lay a good foundation, you must also build wisely. It is important that you use the right materials. And here we have six materials that can be used and the apostle lays them side by side in a decreasing order. Now, for example, let's imagine that someone spends $200,000 laying a really good foundation, a lot of concrete, a lot of rear, everything else, then you have this solid, massive, solid foundation and then you use cardboard, scrap wood and tin to build the rest of the house. What happened there? Oh, I spent all that money on the the footings and the foundation. The same goes for a spiritual building. We've got the foundation, let's do that right, but then what are the materials we're going to use on top of that? Now, the first group, there's there's two groups or three materials here. 
The first group of materials are gold, silver and costly stones. These are symbolic not only of, of good hard work but also costly, valuable, permanent work. When you think about it, very few people walking through the bush have simply tripped over a big nugget of gold. Right? It, had, it has happened, but that's why we know their stories. But very few. To find gold, it's actually really hard work. That's why it's so expensive. It has to be found, it has to be dug out, it has to be purified. And because all these gold and, and silver, they're not all that, that, that common, they are costly. They're expensive. They're valuable. And when he says precious stones, Paul has in mind stones carved out of, of granite or marble that could be put upon the foundation to, to raise the, the walls and, and to complete this building. They were costly stones because they required a great deal of work from the quarries, cutting them, shaping them, transporting them to the place where they were going to be. All of these materials, they can withstand fire. Gold and silver and costly stones are permanent. They are abiding and, and retain, they retain their precious value. But the second group, wood, hay, straw, the wood, of course, is used as frames for the wall and in the old, in the old days, most, mostly used as beams and rafters to hold the whole of the, the roof structure together. That's why if you walk to, through some old archaeological sites, you might see the walls, but no roof. Why? Because the roof has collapsed or it has burnt and everything else, because the whole of the roof was, was built out of timber. The hay and the straw is mixed with mud and used cladding the walls. The hay is used for the roof, the thatch roof. And Paul here uses these materials as being symbolic of something that is not permanent. It is substandard materials. They have their place, but if you want something to last, it's not gonna, it's not gonna make it. It's inadequate. You see, the difference between the Taj Mahal and your garden variety shed that you put together from Bunnings, apart from anything else, is the amount of work, the time, the cost of materials, the skill, the eye for detail involved in the, pre, in the, in the building process. One you can put up in a, in a morning, the other one it takes a lifetime. The other aspect is the cost. Wood, hay or straw are readily available, easy to find. And because they are readily available, they are less costly and cheap to acquire. There's real, no real sacrifice in, in finding them, the cost of it. I suppose once it goes up and, and you look at it from the distance, all you see is a building. But in reality, it's just a, a cheap alternative, temporary used using highly combustible material. And wood, yes, makes an impressive structure and everything else, but you get your bushfire and all of that and away it goes. 
What do these symbols, all these materials that the Apostle Paul, what do they refer to? They refer to the way that we have been involved in God's kingdom. How we have been using our gifts and talents in the work of his church. It refers to the way that we have built our families and our lives. Have we lived for the present, to enjoy the moment that, and just be happy for now, but forgetting about the consequences of our decisions? Or have we actually started to build with good material, solid materials, that will be passed on? And actually, not only for this life, but actually sent already the the good materials to heaven where we're going to spend the rest of eternity. Well, there's an inspection coming, verse 13, the inspection. Their work, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Those who have built their homes know that every now and then a building inspector will turn up to check up on the compliance and sign off on the work being done. There will also come a day when our works will be examined to find out what kind of work we have left behind. The old joke is that A carpenter can hide his mistakes, but a doctor has to bury his. It's easy to fool the neighbours and the passers-by, but not so easy to fool the inspector. Thomas Kempis said, Man sees your actions, but God your motives. Man sees your action, you can fool people, but you cannot fool God. He looks deeper at the reason why you do what you do. The test for believers will be the great day of the Lord, which is the the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. That's the judgment of Christians when all of us stand before the Lord and we will be rewarded or not for our works. In that day, our works will be tested. That is what the Bible says over and over again. They will pass through the fire and and what is gold and silver and costly stones will, will be purified. It will come through this purification process. But whatever is wood and hay and straw will be consumed totally. Well, what is this fire? Is it a literal fire? What is it like? Well, one possibility and a pretty good one is that it refers to the all-seeing, all-searching eyes of God. His eyes are like fire, aren't they? Listen to this description of Jesus in Revelations 1.14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
would you be able, would you and I be able to look into his eyes? And when the Lord looks, he sees all and nothing can be hidden from him. How will you stand in that day? How will you stand? There was a young minister who sat by the, by the bed of a friend who was dying. And as they talk of his going to be with the Lord, tears began to fill the eyes of his dying friend. The young minister thought that his friend was afraid to die and attempted to speak encouraging words to him. But his friend replied, I'm not afraid to die. I am ashamed to die. I'm not afraid to die. I'm ashamed to die. And he just said, what what do you mean? And he went on to say that although Christ was his saviour, most of his life he had lived for himself and now he had to meet the Lord empty-handed and described his life as being wood, hay and straw. Can you see the difference? This may seem like a tragic situation, but unfortunately it's not all that unusual. Sadly, many meet their Lord and will meet their Lord empty-handed. Perhaps they are described in 1 John 2.28. 1 John 2.28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. So there there are those that John is already pointing to the fact that there will be many people who will be ashamed, ashamed, filled with shame for how they live their lives. And there will be those who are confident. And I will explain the difference in a minute. There are some who will be ashamed to meet the Lord because of so little that they did for him while they were here. They ticked the box of salvation and accepted Jesus Christ as their saviour and that was it. They lived their lives for themselves and for this world and not the next. They will be saved but no reward. This is why we need to live our lives for God. Live our lives for God with no regrets. Because shame and regret go together. Uh, C.H. Spurgeon told this story about King Cyrus. Uh, King Cyrus is obviously, we mentioned him a couple of Sundays ago. King Cyrus is the man who who conquered Babylon and and freed the Jews from captivity and, and sent them back to Jerusalem, to the Promised Land. Now, a visitor happened to be admiring Cyrus's garden and said it, it gave him much pleasure to, to just simply look at his garden. Ah, said Cyrus, but you have not so much pleasure in this garden as I have. For I have planted every tree in it myself. Every tree here that you see in this garden, I planted it myself. 
And, and Spurgeon then goes on to comment and says, one reason some Christians will have a greater fullness of heaven than others will be that they did more for heaven than others. By God's grace, they were enabled to bring more souls there, more lives there. Obviously, obviously there will be no one in heaven because of us. No. But how many will be in heaven because God used us, through us, through our ministry, for what we've done, that they will be there in the things that we said, the things that we did. That when we, how wonderful it would be that when we are there in our eternal home, that someone will rock up to us and say, I'm so thankful for you. It was your your testimony. It was your life. It was your words. It was your, your sharing of Christ at a moment in life when I was doubting. It was your encouragement. That is why I am here. Now, this is not far-fetched. I'm not making this stuff up. This is what the Apostle Paul anticipated will be his joy in heaven of seeing people who who were there as as a result that God had used him through his ministry to to send these people to heaven. And and this is what 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20 says. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19-20 For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Heaven's joys will be the fullest for those who have been involved in leading others to Christ, to push them towards that heavenly perspective, to to fix their eyes on heaven, to lead them to Christ. This is certainly one of the ways that we are to lay up treasures in heaven. And lastly, the reward, verses 14 to 15. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. And even though only as one escaping through the flames. From the very outset, just in case some of you might be getting a little confused and concerned, from the very outset I want to say that there is a difference between salvation and rewards. Let us not confuse the two. Salvation is the gift of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. The Bible tells us clearly that it is the gift of God by works so that no one can boast. And salvation in heaven is by far the biggest reward that anyone can receive. And some, however, are, particularly in this day and age, are made to feel guilty with the old, oh yeah, you're going to get the old pie in the sky when you die type of thing. You still believe that, do you? Really? 
Now, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, he said, we are afraid that heaven is a bribe and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so, he says. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. And I quote, and, and continue with, with his quote, he says, It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God, for only the pure in heart want to see God. Let's talk about rewards. Rewards are a different thing altogether. Rewards are given to us according to our works. In Matthew 16:27, we read, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and, when, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. Now, as we've said before, we are not talking about salvation. The loss that may be suffered is not a loss of salvation. Verse 15 clearly says that. Remember that it is, it is the judgment of our works. It is the judgment of our Christian works. It is, a, it is not the, the throne judgment whether we will, be, we will be judged whether we are saved or whether we are lost. This is, this is not the judgment of the lost. No. Those who suffer loss here will be saved but without reward. And those who are faithful in their work in the kingdom shall receive a reward. The Bible talks about crowns, rewards. There will be a prize for the faithful in Jesus. When it comes to this, there is no trophy for everybody. It's not your primary school where everybody gets a trophy, okay? Sorry. And, and you won't be able to cry out in heaven, discrimination, no, no. You won't be able to cry to anybody. And, and there will be a prize. The biggest prize is obviously our salvation, yes. But it, the rewards, we must remember that our concept of heaven is, is, is very limited. It is incomplete. So we don't fully realise what is awaiting for us there. But let me just say that heaven is not this lazy retirement village where there will be nothing to do for eternity, all right? No, no, no. And if there, the Bible talks about those who will rule and reign with Christ. If you're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ, there must be something to rule over. Just what is it? I'm not certain. But whatever God has in store, I'm sure it would be absolutely fantastic. Matthew 25, 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. This is why we need to be about the Father's business, not our business. The Father's business. There are rewards awaiting the faithful. For those who build according to the will of the Father with the best materials possible, with the greatest sacrifice, the most costly 
and valuable things that you do. They will not be for yourself, they will be for God. So let's lay up treasures in heaven. Have you heard that before? Let's lay up treasures in heaven. Nothing can destroy it. Everything else will be eaten away. Not that. In the last verse, Revelations 22.12, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. It's pretty clear as a bell, isn't it? May we, may we so build on the foundation with the right motives that our work will be gold, silver and costly stones. That nothing, when it comes to God's kingdom, nothing will be too much. Because we know that even though we might not get our reward this side of heaven, we might not even get our thanks and all of that, our appreciation, that one day, the one that truly matters will reward us. May God enable us to build for his kingdom. Amen.